very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to enjoy the second part of this interview, which you don't want to miss, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. It's time. Learn the truth. And if you haven't listened to Sanitas Radio, I highly recommend that you do. My life has been upgraded, and so can yours. And if you want to be a guest on this radio program, have a suggestion, or simply want to write to me, I always love to hear from you. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the contact button. Tonight's special guest wrote a book titled, Hallowed Be Thy Name, Lucifer, Origins and Revelation. From the back of the book, it reads, quote, Within these pages come the most blasphemous and crucial theological disclosure of the past 2,000 years. Through years of scholarly research, the author unveils the origins of religious mythology and validates Lucifer as our creator, savior, and God, exculpating him of the quote-unquote crimes the church has levered. She exposes the true mythological origins and identities of Jesus, Lucifer, Satan, God, and Goddess through philology, etymology, symbology, and narrative. For the first time, the complete story of Genesis chapters 2 to 11, on which the entire Old and New Testaments and the Quran rest, is detailed accurately. She shows how Satan is the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and why understanding this is the key to the Luciferian pursuit of enlightenment. This is the first work to offer a complete, definitive mythic basis for Luciferianism, which at its deepest core is goddess worship. Her name is Priscilla Vogelbacher, an occult researcher and an expert in the mythologies of Mesopotamia and the Abrahamic religions, focusing on the character and concept of Lucifer. Her website is linked at ours and she joins us directly from Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Priscilla, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great, thank you. Well, Priscilla, let me just begin by saying that I want to warn the listeners that the information we'll be discussing tonight may be offensive to some, not because you or I will be using foul language, but because the information may go against their belief system. And their paradigm might be shattered. So listen with an open mind, folks. 
I know you have, a, I guess, a similar background to mine, being raised a Catholic, going to catechism, communion, the whole nine yards. Share your journey with us that motivated you to write the book. All right, so in 2002, I got Zachariah Sitchin's first book, The Twelfth Planet, and I was really struck by the fact that he presented mythology not just as a cosmology, but as a history. And that really opened my mind to that whole possibility. And um, because, you know, I was always taught to believe that mythology is just fiction and astrological allegory and metaphors and euphemisms and just filled with hidden meanings that have no surface truth whatsoever. But as it turns out, that's not true. I was always taught to believe, like everybody else, that mythology is fiction, just made up fairy tales, um, allegories, metaphors, and euphemisms. Um, but it's not. There are some, but texts are written in such a way that there's a lot crammed into one space, and you have to be keen and discern everything. The, the myths... The rituals, the rites, the customs, the precepts, the festivals, the, um, you know, and then you have to uh, be able to discern the gods from all of this because uh, all, all of those things that I listed is religion, but mythology is the study of the gods, which obviously is also theology. Um, but mythology is unique because it is the events uh, in the narratives concerning the gods. That's what really interests me. And that's why I say that mythology is my argument here, not religion. Well, let me ask you this about Zacharias Sitchin. Yeah. I happened to have conducted his last interview. I found out that after he passed away, I didn't know this, you may know this, that Sitchin's office was located in Rockefeller Center in New York City. And I know the Rockefellers are behind, among many areas, our indoctrination department. I mean, our education <laughs> system, educational system. So keep Sitchin close to their vest and disseminate what they want. What's your take on this? Yeah, well, that has a lot to do with what I have discovered. And that is his whole Nibiru hypothesis is not true. There's no reason. Nibiru was not as he presented in his book and championed throughout his life. Um, there's only two mentions of the word Nibiru. Uh, Zechariah Sitchin was wrong about quite a lot, but he was mostly wrong about his Nibiru hypothesis. There's actually, when you do the research, and I've done it and presented it in my book, that there's really no evidence to suggest that the gods came from this planet with an elliptical orbit of 3,600 years called Nibiru. The word Nibiru happens only twice in a text, a Babylonian text called the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian epic of creation. And in that text, it occurs twice, like I said. One time, it's a reference to our sun. And another is a reference to the planet Jupiter. But nowhere in that text 
does it speak of any planet outside of our solar system coming in like Sitchin described? So it's interesting that you rec- that you uh, mentioned the Rockefellers um, backing up this ridiculous theory um, because, you know, he's in the business of education and medicine, which if anybody does any research in those fields knows that everything is pretty much backwards. And it's, it's basically mythic propaganda in that light. And you know, like, you, it's, like you said in the intro, well, I'm, I'm sorry, you were, you were finishing your statement. Go ahead. Oh, it just, it gets into a little more. It's, it's also tied in with the concept of hell and why everybody is looking to the stars for the gods. Um, and it has to do with the mythic propaganda that, uh, people believe in regarding Zechariah Sitchin and also Eric von Daniken. Now, I'm not saying Eric, Eric von Daniken is purposely spreading uh, mythic propaganda, but he's, I don't think he's on the right track. Um, so let me explain a little bit of history. Ancient Jerusalem, um, there was something called the Valley of Hinnom that circled the old city. And the Valley of Hinnom is where we get uh, the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is the Hebrew word that is used for the word hell. Gehenna in the New Testament is translated as hell in the gospel. So every time you hear or read Jesus talking about hell, talking about Gehenna. Gehenna was this Valley of Hinnom, as I said which there was two valleys. The other one was the Valley of Kidron. And in the Valley of Hinnom, there was an altar of towpath. And um, the valley itself was an ever-burning refuse heap. And people threw garbage in there, dead bodies, dead animals. And um, this altar of towpath was an altar to two gods, the, the uh, Canaanite gods Baal, and Moloch. Now, Baal is the head Canaanite deity. He's the Canaanite Yahweh. Moloch is an aspect of Yahweh. And Moloch is interesting because the symbol for Moloch is the owl. Now, getting back to uh, Rockefeller, and he's tied in with the Illuminati. And if anybody does any conspiracy research, they'll know about the Northern California Resort. Um, Bohemian Grove. Yeah, Bohemian Grove, where the elites of business and finance and politics gather. And they have this ceremony called the Cremation of Care, where they all dress up in what look like KKK outfits, hoods and robes. And they stand before a 40-some foot statue of an owl. And that owl is a symbol of Moloch, the same Moloch from And in ancient Jerusalem on this old, people would sacrifice you know, various things to the gods, but specifically to Moloch, they sacrificed their children and burned them alive. Now, the 
cremation of care ceremony that these elites do uh, right before this owl is the same thing. They put a body on the altar and they burn it. Now, Alex Jones has a documentary about this, and if you watch it, you can actually hear a scream. I don't know if it's a real person or not, but it really makes you wonder, because it really is the exact same thing. So the fires of hell, which is is where this comes from, which is why Jesus speaks of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, um, it, like I said, it's interesting you mentioned the Rockefellers because they are a part of the Illuminati and it is the Illuminati. The Bilderberg group, call them what you want, that do this in Northern California every year. The, the way I see it, Priscilla, whatever they can do to spread fear is going to increase their, their fortune. Oh, yes. Medicine? You spread fear that Nibiru is coming. I remember prior to 2012, for many years, everybody's thinking, could it be Nibiru? Could, be, could it be the Mayan calendar telling us that Nibiru is coming? So in their minds, they're thinking fear creates disease. And the less educated people are, the more indoctrinated they are, the more powerful they become. So obviously, in my opinion, there's a connection there. But like you said in the intro of your book, quote, as children... We muse upon the greatest questions of life. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? Unquote. Well, those are the questions that motivated me to create this program. Why do you think our peers concern, them, concern themselves less with these questions or more with basis pop culture, you know, fads of the day, or as the Romans called it, panamed citizens says, breads, bread and circuses. Right. It's a choice, obviously. Nobody's being forced to ignore this information and pay attention to the media and the popular culture. But it's a choice, and it's a lot easier at the end of your workday to sit in front of the TV and have it tell you what to think and what's going on with the world instead of grabbing a book and doing some research for yourself. And it's just easier. Why do people... Why do, people, why do people equate, you were talking about mythology, that word always, always made me wonder, I mean, why do we learn in school about the Greeks and, you know, Zeus and Athena and this and that, yeah. if it's pure fiction, when in fact, the word mythology is completely misunderstood in today's society, mythos, 1270 AD means historic events that were sworn to be accurate and true by priests and kings, it was an affidavit of accuracy in history. So it actually means completely opposite to the value that we have ascribed to it today. When did this come about, Priscilla? Yeah, this was in the 19th century with the dawn of Darwinism, actually. It, uh, the scientific community had always kind of despised religion, and it still does to a large extent. And anything religious or mystical at all, it just doesn't want to consider at all. Uh, with Darwin and um, what's the other guy's name? Which one? I'm sorry, I lost you there. Darwin and Wallace. Oh, Wallace. Okay, go ahead. Wallace in the 19th century, when they proposed their theories of evolution, and especially Darwin, um, that gave the scientific community a way out of the religious uh, confines 
that had been, you know, forced upon people for centuries through violence, torture, and bloodshed. And there's a good reason for that, too, which we can get into. But it wasn't until the early 19th century that the word mythology was regarded in the sense of an untrue story. Before then, it was taken as a history and was considered true. Um, but like I said, Darwinism came along and kind of got rid of that. And since then, by and large, people have believed and continue to believe that we're just apes evolved and our prehistory is nothing more fanciful than, you know, evolution taking us to where we where we got. Apes evolved, even though I've never seen an ape evolving into a human, kind of a halfway, <laughs> and we still yeah. have apes being apes. How come they're not morphing into humans? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we descended from a common ancestor, as the theory goes, and uh, but nobody knows what this common ancestor is. It's just, you know, magically it's there in the past somewhere. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before the right fossil comes along, right? But I, I haven't seen anything. What's your take on, and I know this is a big part of your book, what's your take on the Genesis Genesis story, which is different than what we were taught? Yeah, um, Genesis, the, I focus on chapters 2 through 11, and that is an extremely condensed and abridged version of much older Mesopotamian myths. Um, like I said, mentioned before, the Anuma Elish was one of them. The Atrahasis, which largely comprises the story of the flood, is one. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which has the oldest flood myth in it, is one of them. And these and some others were used to write the Genesis story. Now, we, we can get into the whole story if you want. Certainly, sure. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. Um, why were we created in the first place? Were we actual a product of evolution? Yes and no. Uh, the story starts off with a group of gods called the Agiki, and they were toiling in the mines of the Apsu, and the Apsu is the sweet water to... Um, to Tiamat's salt water. It's basically mines underneath the ocean or the seas. Where exactly this was, we don't know. But it certainly was not in Southeast Africa, like Sitchin claimed. Because the word Apsu actually means nether sea. It explicitly means waters of the earth, not the cosmic waters of outer space. That's where he gets it wrong. So let me just dissect this one by one. Tiamat, for example, we're told that it's a planet between Mars and, or, um, and Earth, I believe, that <laughs> yeah. supposedly exploded, and this is what is now the asteroid belt. You think that's not true? Well, I mean, there might have been a planet that became the asteroid belt. I'm not discounting that. But what Tiamat is in these myths is not that. I, I personally do not see a cosmology that Sitchin saw. Um, I personally think he was heavily influenced by Emmanuel Velikovsky's book, mm, yeah. Worlds in Collision, 
because he proposed, and this was, I think it was published in 1952, which was uh, more than 20 years before Sitchin published his work. And he claimed that the planet Venus shot out of the planet Jupiter as a rogue object. And that, that to me, sounds an awfully like his Nibiru being a rogue object in our solar system. So I really do think he was influenced by that. And But Tiamat is actually a mother goddess, mother of the gods. She was an underwater dragon goddess, and she had an army of chaos monsters. And um, the Agigi had a rebellion because after a while of toiling in the mines for precious metals and resources, they said, enough is enough. This work is too hard. It's too laborious. Um, they called it the corvée of the gods. They said, we need to, need to do something about this. So what they did was there is a leader of this rebellion and his name was, uh, it, it varies depending on the text. In the Atrahasis, his name is Wa'ila, or We, and, or Geshtu'i. And the Babylonian text, his name is Kingu. And if anybody is familiar with Sitchin, he says Kingu is our moon. But Kingu is the leader of this rebellion of the Agigi. And... Um, so he was appointed, and they all took their weapons and raced to the palace of Enlil. And Enlil is the Sumerian Yahweh. He was the head of the pantheon. And um, so they, they surrounded his palace and woke him up during the night. And his mother, which is also Enki's mother, who is Satan, and we can get into that, why that is, if you like. But Enki was woken up by their mother, too. And they wanted to know what was going on, obviously. And after they found out, uh, Enki said, and Enlil also said, yeah, they are correct. This work is too rough, and there's suffering. And so we need to do something about it. Create a slave race. Right. Create create a being that will take the corvée of the gods upon themselves and relieve them of their hard work. And so Enki and their mother decided to make this being. And they said, well, there is a being that actually exists here, and that was us um, in our primitive state. Now, what what primate did we come from is another topic altogether. Nobody really knows. And so they took this being, and they used the blood of Kingu, and they killed Kingu to make an example of him, to say, you know, if you rebel against us again, this is what happens. But they mixed his blood or DNA, because that's, they use the word clay, but that's really a code word for DNA, because when you read the text, it's pretty clear that that's what's happening. They take the DNA of the god, 
and mix it with our ancestor and create us. And that is why we were created, to relieve the gods of their labor. And man in Sumerian means worker, which is very fitting to the story. I found that interesting that the word man equates slave. But when we hear the word God or gods, we immediately think of an entity descending from heaven. You know, we see the right. angels coming down, we see God coming down, and we think of heaven as space or outer space. Therefore, we assume God or the gods come from outer space. But why don't you define heaven for us and explain this, please? Well, the word heaven etymologically means sky. That does not necessitate outer space. Sky is the firmament. The firmament is our atmosphere, and that, in the extra-biblical sources, is the first heaven. There's layers. And that's what is meant by heaven, or the heavens. The heavens is the cosmos, but heaven is the sky. So you have to be very careful when when uh, reading these things to distinguish between these two because there's a world of difference between them. So all these texts speaking of the gods coming from the sky, let's go through some of these examples. Yahweh's tabernacle in the Old Testament, for example, that's a great uh, thing to bring up. It's, Repeat that, Yahweh, and then? Yahweh's has a tabernacle in the Hebrew Old Testament. And the word is in Hebrew, which means tent of meeting, um, which could be found in the book of Enoch also, in 3 Enoch 24.8. And, uh, but the tabernacle is uh, Hebrew mishkan, literally meaning dwelling place. And people think it means a tent because of the word ha-ohel. Um, but that's not a literal tent because it lifts off, it lands from the sky, and as I said before, it's a dwelling place. So what it really is, is Yahweh's vehicle. Oh, when and, I think of Von Daniken, for example, you were mentioning that you may not yeah. subscribe to his point of view, and nor do I, the chariots of the gods, and then you have ancient aliens. And I always think, if they really wanted to bring all this information out to the mainstream, then it's a lie, in my opinion. Yeah, well, it's more, I, I like Ancient Aliens show, but it's more of a distorted version of things. Well, it's entertainment, it's, in my opinion. It is entertainment, primarily, yes. Yes. And um, some of it's a bit ridiculous, to be honest. But getting back to the gods coming from the sky, there's a few other terms where we can identify with these aerial craft. One is cloud. Whenever you see the word cloud, uh, for example, Isaiah 19.1, um, or the gods descended upon cherubs or in a chariot, for example, the second book of Samuel mm-hmm. 22.11. Um, and this corresponds to the Canaanite religion. And if you read the Baal cycle, the Baal mythology, Baal is the cloud rider. And Yahweh rides on a cloud as well. 
and descends and ascends. And you also read of pillars of clouds. For example, in Exodus 19.9 or Deuteronomy 31.15. So these terms are actually terms to describe a craft. But the people who saw these things didn't know what they were because our primitive ancestors, even though if we take mythology as a history and say we were created by the gods, these people from Adam to Jesus were still pretty primitive. You know, people didn't really understand technology and they had to use the terms that they could identify with to describe what they were seeing. That is something that, you know, the ancient alien crowd gets right, in my opinion. Now, but whenever, oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your statement. Right. But whenever you, you see, read, or hear about the gods descending from the sky, it doesn't necessarily mean outer space. And in fact, through all the biblical and extra biblical material that I have studied, I have not seen much legitimate um, references to outer space. There's a few, um, but there's nothing that explicitly tells me that the gods came out of space. Well, you probably have heard all the talk lately about the flat earth, right? So when you mentioned the firmament, that's what triggered in me. And Genesis 8 2 shows the actual, you know, depiction of what this is all about. The earth, then above it, you have the firmament, and above them, more waters. So, right. you know, as you say, there's no talk about outer space. So I wonder where this comes from. If the whole notion of outer space is to make us believe that we are this, you know, fragment, uh, a piece of sand in the entire universe, which makes us believe that we're just nothing. Yeah, we're... Not- we're insignificant exactly. to the grand scheme of things. Our lives have no real divine meaning, no real purpose. So what should you do with your life? Well, there is no cosmic calling, so just pay your bills and die. That's right. Yeah. The As I always say, slavery was not abolished. It was transmuted into the 9 to 5 <laughs> matrix. But Lucifer, yes. which is a, a big part of your book, and I'll, yeah. Yeah, I know, folks, that when I use that that name, some of you cringe, but bear in mind that all our lives we've been told, believe in Christianity, believe in Islam, believe in Judaism, Abrahamic religions. And this comes from the top, from the powers that want to be. But allegedly, they're Luciferians. So if they're promoting all of this, and they are another religion, does that make sense? Or are, ba- are they basically telling us, wink, wink, don't look here because this is the real truth? And again, folks, I don't believe in the devil. I am not ascribed to any religion, as, as Priscilla is. I do believe that we were created by somebody, a higher power, but Lucifer. Who is Lucifer? All right. Well, before I get into that, I have to clarify. I am not religious. I don't subscribe to any religion. I right. don't believe in any of it. I'm agnostic and I am simply fascinated, endlessly fascinated by mythology. So that has given me an objective perspective on this subject, which has been severely lacking. Well, that's what we need. We need somebody impartial, totally objective, that can see both sides and comment about that. 
Because sometimes I get people who are very devout of something, and they have a biased. We need an unbiased perspective. Oh, yes. Um, I don't know if you mentioned, did you mention that the elite are Luciferians? Well, that's what we're told all the time. Oh, those reptilian right. Luciferians. But yet they're pushing always, you know, they're okay with people being Christians or Jews or Muslim. And they keep the wars perpetuated all the time. You see where I'm coming from? Yeah. No, I believe I believe they do worship the Abrahamic God. And that's why the Abrahamic God dominates the world today. And it comes from ancient Rome. Uh, the Flavian dynasty actually came up with the myth of Jesus. Flavius Josephus, you mean? Uh, Titus Flavius Josephus, yes? Yes, yes. Josephus and other writers were commissioned by the Flavian dynasty to write uh, new books for the New Testament because Titus was on a campaign in Jerusalem and was really... Uh, oppressing the Jews, and there was a sect of Jews at the time called the Sicarii, which were basically assassins, and they would assassinate Romans in public. Um, but Titus put up a really good fight. And there was this, there was a book by Joseph Atwell that came out recently called Caesar's Messiah, and he does a really yep. good job. We've, we've had it on the show here. Excellent yeah. dissertation, yes. It, it is an excellent read. And he does a great job at showing that Titus's campaign in Jerusalem is mirrored in uh, Jesus's uh, ministry. And once you read that and and go back to the New Testament and look, it becomes pretty unmistakable. Um, so the myth of Jesus, and he is a myth, not a historical figure, was created by the Romans to... Uh, What's the word? <laughs> well, if Jesus, hold on, uh, while I get your sound back, because I'm losing it again, let me just say a few things. But isn't it interesting that the Vatican, the center of Christian Christianity and spirituality, is in Rome and not in Jerusalem? Right. Yeah, you got to ask, why is that? But that is the reason why. Um, because the Romans gave the Jews who they were oppressing, a savior, which they desperately wanted. But they wanted to be saved from the Romans. But instead, they said, well, believe in Jesus and, you know, your soul will be saved. But, you know, that, that later became Christianity, not a part of Judaism. So you think ETs, space aliens, UFOs, are part of a broader conspiracy that's in place in order to keep humans from looking where we need to look to understand our origins and our existence? I don't think we need to invoke ETs with that. I think uh, look to the Illuminati, look to the Bilderbergers, look to the New World That's as far as Losing you? Losing you? Okay, repeat that. Don't, don't look into, into ET, look into the Illuminati. That's where I got the last part. Yeah, don't. I don't think we need to invoke extraterrestrials into this for a conspiracy explanation. We just have to look to the New World Order because people are our own worst enemies. Um, 
I think the whole ETs are behind everything explanation drives from the fact that people want to believe that people are born good and given this choice will do good. Um, but I don't believe that. I believe people are born neutral and predisposed to evil and that civility is a learned behavior. That's what I believe. That's a, a good point. I also think the more I conduct this this program, for example, years ago I interviewed some initiates from the Dogon tribe. And when I mentioned to them, when we were discussing the magnificent feats that humans had done thousands of years ago, these monuments we see around the world, and I used the word ancient alien, <laughs> the person flipped and was so upset and I can see why now. Because he says, why do we have to continue giving these people all the credit? When in fact, it was probably us humans. And something happened along the way, perhaps during the deluge, where somebody realized that we were getting too smart. Let's flood all these humans like roaches, and let's begin again, and let's wipe out all the information, all the wisdom, all the knowledge from history, and let's not talk about it anymore. Your take on that. Okay, let's let's get into this story. Um, let's start with the deluge. Actually, um, what what happened? What made it come about? That's the yeah. that's the question that needs to be asked. Now, after the death of Adam and Eve, uh, there was the popular myth of the fallen angels coming down and taking the daughters of men. And everybody knows this from the book of Enoch. And these angels were under Lucifer's command. They were called in Greek, Gregori, which means watchers. And there were 200 of them that came down, which was actually one third of the Anunnaki. And they took daughters of men and some of them produced offspring uh, and the Ethiopic book, the Kebra Nagast scripture, actually tells us that they didn't have natural births. They were born prematurely, bursting forth, splitting the mother's bellies open. Uh, so these women died very painful deaths, giving birth to these things. And the giants were not the were born. They were hybrid creatures called in the text, which is a very generic term, but they were really hybrid creatures and uh, mixed with um, very deformed people that looked monstrous. Um, so there's these two, you know, mythic beings being born upon the earth in those days. And at that time, there was 120 years before the flood happened. Now, it's really interesting because the angels lived among them and under Lucifer's command uh, set up civilization and they taught them the war, the arts of war, how to make weapons and armor and things like cosmetology and technology, which, you know, is called magic, but uh, if anybody knows Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Niven's Law, any sufficiently developed technology is indistinguishable from magic. They're really the same thing. 
whenever you read of magic in the myths, they're really talking about technology. And Lucifer and his angels, which were the Anunnaki, taught people these things. They were the ones who established civilization to begin with. And one of, one of the Lucifer's epithets corresponds to the uh, Chaldean Oannes, who came from the sea, which corresponds to Tiamat, which we were discussing earlier. And he was a bringer of civilization. And also in South America, in Central America, Quetzalcoatl came from the sea and gave mankind civilization. And that corresponds too. And, um, but what's really interesting is that um, Noah, the hero of the flood, actually looked like the Anunnaki. He didn't look human. Actually, in the text, um, Lamech said to his father Methuselah, his form is different and he is not like us. And that's in the first book of Enoch, verse 106. And, you know, we hear a lot uh, in the text focus on the lineage and the direct lineage from Adam to Noah to... Please, beyond. please repeat that. Please repeat. Uh, we read in the text about the lineage of Adam and a lot of emphasis and story is placed upon them. Uh, Adam, Methuselah, Enoch, etc., etc., Cain, Abel. Why is that? Because in the text, Adam and Eve were not the only ones created. They were, they were prized because they were the successful prototypes. What happened was, uh, originally seven males and seven females were created. And this is also in the Quran. When it speaks of Adam, it means man in general, not just one individual. And also in the Mayan text, the Paul Paul Vu, there was a multiple of people, not just one or two. So why just Adam and Eve? They weren't the only ones, but it's because they were the prototypes. So why is their lineage important? Because they were the ones that became the antediluvian rulers. For instance, Noah was the king of the city called Shuripak. And his, his deity was Anki, who I said before. Before you go there, let me just go back to Adam and Eve for a second. Female, male, the first humans created, allegedly. But, of course, you're saying that more. But they, they were the, 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 the final product, if you will. Yes. But they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Now, how are, were they able to repro reproduce if there were two males? What do you mean? Well, the first two humans came from Adam and Eve. Came oh, Abel. yes. Well, actually, they had more children than that. Oh, yeah, that. they had they, Seth and others, yes. Seth. Uh, their first daughter was called Nerea. Okay. Uh, they had 30 children in total, I believe it was. So, sons and daughters. So, 33 sons <laughs> and 23 daughters. Wow. No, I, I think it was 30 children total. It says the number of Adam's children, as says the old tradition, was 33 sons and 23 daughters. Okay. Genesis yeah. 1 to 28. There you go. And by the way, the, what is it? They lived for 930 years. We we hear this yeah. in the Old Testament, These the, the, the extended lifespans. Is it yeah. because they they really lived that long, or did they have a different... 
way of measuring time. No, they didn't have a different, a terribly different way of measuring time. They actually did live that long, and that is because they had the genetics of the gods, very, very close genetics. But as the population increased, the genetic pool uh, thinned out more and more and more. And today, you know, our lifespans are pretty pathetic in comparison. And that's the reason why. You know, because the gods, sorry, the Go gods, ahead. the gods lived for tens of thousands of years. And this is, um, proven by the Sumerian kings list and also the kings list, uh, given by Barosis. You know, as a child, when I heard of Genesis six, six to nine, the story of uh, Noah's Ark, my mind was always fighting it. Because I had to bite my tongue, and, and you know, a lot of times I wanted to ask my religion teachers, how in the world was Noah able to build such a large ark that could store every single animal species? It doesn't make sense to me. To me, it sounds like a children's story, innocent and foolish, right. entertainment for babies. What is the real meaning that it's <laughs> hiding, Priscilla? All right, let's get to that. Now, after Noah was born... Uh, there was a split between the human population. And in the Jewish account, the Haggadah, they're called the Cainites and the Sethites. The Cainites lived under the rule of Lucifer, and the Sethites lived under the rule of Yahweh. The Sethites were along the Zagros mountain range, and the Cainites were along what later become known as the land of Canaan, which today is the land of Israel. Now, the Canaanites and the Sethites had large differences in the way they lived. Uh, the Sethites were under strict rule, but the Canaanites were given pretty much carte blanche to live as however they wanted. They had a lot of pleasure and leisure, and technology served them because the Anunnaki gave it to them. Now, Yahweh, who is Enlil, didn't like this one bit. He wanted to keep mankind in a state of servitude uh, because he viewed us as lowly animals and not divine beings. And so he took a campaign uh, to eradicate us, but it took a while before the flood. First, he wanted to spread plague, to thin out the herd, and that lasted for a while, but that wasn't good enough. And that was spread by uh, one of his angels, who in the Sumerian text is called Namtar. And then he cut off people's food supply and made sure the, yield, the fields did not yield any food. And it was choked with salt, as the text says. The God's will withheld the rains also, so food would not grow, and people would not have water. And there was a period of six very intense years when people deteriorated into a worse and worse state. Um, in the second year, people were burdened with itch everywhere, and storehouses of food were completely depleted. Third year, they became malformed, discolored, and starvation. Can we repeat the, that? The, the itch part, I lost you after that. In the third year, 
people became malformed and discolored from starvation. In the fourth year, people, um, <laughs> sorry, people produced deformities um, from lack of food, from lack of nutrition. In the fifth year, people started selling their children for food, whatever food they could get. And then in the sixth year, there was nothing left. So they ate their own children. And these six years, you know, Enlil Yahweh left people to their own devices. The gods didn't give them anything. Um, but <clears throat> the gods held a council after that because Enlil didn't like that it was taking too long to eradicate humanity. And the gods gathered together. And Enki was defiant in that council. Now, just to define, you said that Enlil was Yahweh. Yeah. Enki was Satan or Lucifer, am I right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how do I come to these conclusions? Some people have made these assumptions, but nobody, as far as I know, has proven it. Um, as far as Yahweh is concerned... In the Old Testament, Yahweh is many things, but one of the things he is is also the breath of God. And the breath of God is the wind. And the wind is also reflected in Sumerian mythology as the Lord of the wind, which actually is the meaning of the name Enlil, Lord Wind. Um, so etymologically, it's provable. Now, why is Enki Satan? Enki, uh, you have to understand, split into Enki and Ea. Ea was an Akkadian word, and he was the god of the sea. Enki was the lord of the earth, but it was the same exact deity. And so when you get to older mythologies like Canaanite and Greek, in Canaanite, we have the lord of the underworld as Mot, and the lord of the sea as Yam. In Greek mythology, the Lord of the Sea is Poseidon, and the Lord of the Underworld is Hades. Mm -hmm. But these all go back to the same one. Now, obviously, in the Abrahamic religions, the Lord of the Underworld is Satan, but that's not the only tie. Um, Enki is the Lord of the Earth, and in the Gospels, Satan is the ruler of the world. Um, and that correlation can... It just cannot be ignored. And also the dragon is a very, very close tie with that. Satan is the red dragon, and the dragon corresponds with Tiamat, which, which is a deity of the sea, shared by Ea. And dragon is actually... Um, in, in its symbolic form, the dragon is actually the encompasses the elements of the earth, earth, air, fire, and water. It breathes fire. It, For one, dragons originally come from the water, and uh, with its claws it digs in the earth and also runs the earth and is master over it. Um, and also the air because with its wings it flies through the air. It is a very, very versatile animal. 
And <laughs> the take, gods, take, take, take five seconds to see if I can get you back because I'm losing you. Go ahead. Okay. All right, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I believe the gods actually looked kind of like dragons, actually, as a whole. Because what, what comes up a lot is um, that every time you read of an encounter of Yahweh or angels or other deities, the thing that comes up a lot is that their appearance is terrifying. And people who see these beings uh, shake and quake in their boots and prostrate themselves in fear. Um, but it's not until you get to the Sumerian accounts that it really comes through because uh, the description of Enki and his son Marduk uh, are very uh, reptilian and dragon-like. Enki uh, says that... Uh, I actually don't have the description with me, but it's in the book. Well, a lot of people who, who come to this radio program to tell us of their stories of abduction, if you will, a lot of times they see, whether it's in a ship or somewhere else, they see the grays, but behind them, probably as their quote-unquote boss or superior, is a reptilian-looking entity. And perhaps these grays are nothing but drones or bio-robots or slaves. Right, right. Okay, I got a description of Ea if you'd like to hear it. Sure. All right. This is a translation by R.C. Thompson. He says, The head is the head of a serpent. From his nostrils mucus trickles. His mouth is beslavored with water. His ears are like those of a basilisk. His horns are twisted into three curls. He wears a veil on his headband. His body is a sufish full of stars. The base of his feet are claws. The sole of his foot has no heel. His name is Sasuunu, a sea monster. So that's a description of Ea in the myths. Now, Marduk is not far removed from that. Let me see if I can find it. Again, Marduk is also known astrotheologically as Mars, or vice versa. Um, yeah, in, in Sitchin's interpretation. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so Marduk's form, and this is a description given by E.A. Spicer. He states, perfect were his members beyond comprehension, unsuited for understanding, difficult to perceive. Four were his eyes, four were his ears. When he moved his lips, fire blazed forth. Large were all four hearing organs, and his eyes, like in number, scanned all things. He was the loftiest of the gods, surpassing was his stature. His members were enormous. He was exceedingly tall. So here we have very corresponding um, descriptions of dragons. Dragons have horns. So does the red dragon Satan. Horns are actually a status of uh, a symbol of status, as were wings. I believe that the uh, chief deities had the horns and wings. Hold it right the there. Lower, let, let me ask you this, because if, if I don't ask you now, I forget. I'm sorry. But you probably have heard the three most common words in ancient books, gold, slavery, and the feathered serpent. Let, let's yeah. just take one by one, starting with the serpent. It seems the serpent or the snake is demonized 
Yeah. And we equate it with Satan or the devil when, you know, too many ancient cultures, uh, this creature is of wisdom and it's venerated. Your thoughts on the serpent and the other two words, if you'd like. Well, the short answer is the serpent is not only Satan, but also the goddess. And <laughs> the goddess is also Lucifer. Um, but that's a very long and very complicated explanation. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked from what we were talking sure. about before. But let's, let's just go over Eden for just a minute. Now in the Garden of Eden, the serpent tells Eve to eat the fruit. But the serpent is Azazel. And he, um, in the Apocalypse of Moses is described as a dragon man. And Azazel, of course, is an epithet of Satan, Lucifer. Repeat that, so, please. Repeat that. Azazel is an epithet of Satan and Lucifer. Uh, the word actually means who God strengthens because it comes from the Yom Kippur tradition. When um, the ancient Jews had two goats, one they sacrificed and the other they put their sins into symbolically and had <clears throat> wander off into the wilderness. And that was a sacrifice to Azazel. They give that goat to Azazel, which is why the goat is a symbol of Satan. The goat, the Baphomet, it comes from uh, two words, Baphis and Metis. Baphe is, uh, it means baptism, and Metis means wisdom. So the Baphomet goat, who is worshipped by the Knights Templars, or at least accused of, actually means baptism and wisdom. The goat symbol is a symbol of wisdom, and wisdom has a deep tie to enlightenment and the Eden story. So when Satan tells Eve to eat the fruit, and she does, and then Adam does, uh, what he's doing is freeing them from ignorance and bondage in a life of servitude and thraldom. Uh, because in one of the texts, he explicitly says, I do not want you to be ignorant. And that is the whole reason why he did that. And now the forbidden fruit, the term fruit uh, is very generic, but everybody thinks of an apple. apple. Yeah. But the, the reason why is because of an ancient pun that the prelates used. When the Bible is being translated for, into Latin, particularly with the Vulgate, um, priests and prelates uh, interchanged the words for fruit, which in Latin was malum, uh, which means uh, apple. But um, they interchanged it a lot with the word malus, which means evil intent or harm. So this gave rise to the idea that eating of the fruit brought all the evil and sin in the world, much like uh, in the Greek myth with Pandora's jar being opened. Uh, but the fruit actually, if you read the extra biblical sources, actually states it, it looked more like a bunch of grapes on the vine, but they were white grapes. Um, but I take issue with that too, because in some Gnostic scriptures, we read that their minds opened after they ate the fruit and their teeth were set on edge. 
so this really smacks of a hallucinogenic. And when we hear white grapes, I think of the white speckled cats of the Amanita muscaria mushroom or magic mushrooms in general as a cluster on the tree itself. Um, so I really believe the forbidden fruit is actually magic mushrooms that open their minds like Satan wanted them to. Speaking of, of uh, the tree and hallucinogens, do you think that possibly Moses was under a hallucinogen and this is why? <laughs> oh, yeah. What's your take on that? Oh, yeah. The whole burning bush thing. He was tripping on shrooms hard. <laughs> All right. Yeah, definitely. Um. But yeah, this this is where the concept of enlightenment comes from, from the Abrahamic Genesis myth. Uh, it's this tree, which is actually came from the ancient mushroom cult, uh, which goes a lot further back in time. Well, when you think of the word Lucifer, in Latin, luz means light, in Spanish, light, luz, Lucifer. Is there a correlation between enlightenment and Lucifer? Oh, of course. It's in the name itself, as you just said. Uh, it, it comes from the Latin term lux fer. Uh, excuse me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but lux means light, and fer means carry or to carry. So he is a bringer of light. He's the harbinger of the sun in astrotheology, and he is the bringer of enlightenment. And through him is the path to enlightenment. And it's demonstrated not in, not just in the Eden myth, but in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, he went in, driven out there by the Holy Spirit, right? And after 40 days of fasting and meditation, what happens? He encounters Satan. But that is the only place in the Old or New Testaments where the Satan, the uh, you know, cosmic anti-God, as it were, appears. Now, this is very telling because that tells us Satan, as an opposition to God, is actually uh, born of a hallucination, a delusion, a delirium uh, that he induced from fasting for so long. Now, you said delirium induced by the fasting for so long. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um. Now, it stands to reason because he was uh, driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and he encountered Satan. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a satanic force because that was the whole purpose behind doing that. And there is also something called the Shekinah. And the Shekinah is the energy force from which all the angels were born, including Satan, Lucifer. So... That tells us that it's a negative force as well as a good force. So hold it right and there because we have to take a one and only break. We have to break both segments. But when we come back, we're going to get so much deeper. And again, folks, I understand that this might be offensive to some of you because just like, again, people call me and they say, Mel, you know, I can't believe they're a flat earther. I'm, ne I'm neither. I don't adopt or subscribe to any. I'm just looking for answers. I don't believe we live in a, in a sphere either. But please let us look for answers. Same thing with what we were discussing tonight. What is what we've been told? And there's the work of Joseph Atwill, and Caesar's Messiah, and, and all that, and the Council of Nicaea, and, and Titus Flavius Josephus talking about all this. Let's, let's dissect 
entertain, just like if you go to a restaurant buffet, take what you like and leave what you don't, but at least consider the information. But before the break, let me just ask you this, and I'll get you an answer on the other side. You mentioned the underworld. Is yeah. there an underworld or an underground world? And that's why some of these gods were described as white, like the sun, perhaps albinos, or having no melanin. And that's why I mentioned the subterranean aspect and the fact that we're always being told NASA, which to me is another religious religion. It, to me, it's also the biggest money laundering entity in the world, getting billions of dollars every year that probably go to black projects. And in the meantime, they just, their window dressing, giving us the illusion that they're looking for these Earth-like planets in a Goldilocks zone in God knows what constellation. When in fact, we may, may have a firmament above us in the real world may be under us, and that's why they never talk about the underworld. I'll take your answer on the other side, but how can people learn more about your work and buy Hallowed Be Thy Name, the book? Yes, the book is called Hallowed Be Thy Name, Lucifer Origins and Revelation. It is available only on Amazon, and you can go. There's two reviews so far. I would like to see more, um, but they've gotten stellar reviews so far. The book is reasonably pretty reasonably priced for what it is it's extremely dense uh it's a wealth of information and it's well worth the time and money spent and i have to tell you i have it right here in front of me folks it's over 700 pages long so you're not going to read this in one night you have to take your time read it in pieces because it is full of information and i have to tell you it is very well written, very scholarly. And I'd like to ask you when we come back, where in the world did you get all this information if you're self-taught? But I'll get you an answer on the other side. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Priscilla Vogelbacher discussing Hallowed Be Thy Name, Lucifer, Origins, and Revelation. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Thank you.